0: Hello and welcome to our second episode of Yesterday in Travel. My name is Kalina Fraga and I'm joined as always by Brian Rogers. Hi Brian. Hey. Today, we're going to be discussing Hurricane Aniki, which made landfall on the island of Kauai as a category four storm on September 11th, 1992, the strongest storm ever to hit the island. In Hawaiian, Aniki means a strong piercing wind and it left a wake of destruction that had lasting effects on Hawaii's people and its tourist-centered economy. It also brought up renewed questions around Kauai's dependence on tourism and sustainability. And one of the things we're going to be discussing is this question of how an event like this can affect thinking around a community's reliance on tourism versus other more stable economies. And we will be discussing all of this in a moment, but first we're going to quickly check the pulse of travel as it stands now and share some of the most important things we're finding.
1: Yeah, so as we do every week, we're looking at things like TSA throughput, the number of people that are passing through the TSA security checkpoints across United States airports. And what we're seeing is that the number of people going through security has been trending down slightly from early August. This is normal. There's sort of an annual trend from August to September for there to be a slight downward tick in in people traveling, but uh, this is still putting us at about 30% of the normal levels of travel, at least compared to levels last year, 2019. In addition, we're looking at kayak searches, um, and it seems that they are still about 50% down from a year ago. Uh, And in other news this week, we heard that some major airlines announced that they were going to be eliminating the change fees on flights. So if you purchased a ticket on United, Delta or American Airlines, they're no longer going to be charging certain change fees to change the date of your ticket, uh, which is something that people have always complained about and now is even more of a concern for people purchasing flights. There are some exceptions, so it depends from airline to airline. Delta specified that this doesn't apply to their basic economy tickets, which are sort of the lowest level tickets and this is also something that Southwest has always done they're sort of catching up to Southwest which has never charged fees for for changing your your flight date as far as where you can and can't travel not much has changed since last week there are still a handful of countries in the Caribbean and Eastern Europe that are allowing visitors and each of them have their own rules around testing so you know it's important to if you are thinking of trying to take a trip that you really check with what the most updated uh, rules are for that individual country. But as far as the CDC and the recommendations from the U.S. government, everyone is still communicating the message that people should try to avoid unnecessary travel. There are still outbreaks happening across the U.S. There are spikes in Western Europe. So the situation hasn't improved for the most part since last week, certainly. And road trips seem to still be the best way for people to get away for right now.
0: Can I add one rumor that I heard actually, one travel industry rumor? Yeah. Um, When I was researching this earlier in the week, I saw that London and New York are talking about opening up a travel corridor between those two cities. Apparently there's Hmm. high level talks about this going on at the moment, which would be very cool. Hmm. Obviously you need to prove that you're a New York resident. You need the driver's license to qualify, I believe.
1: Huh, interesting. That seems surprising. Yeah. I mean, I know New York's cases are very low. I'm not positive what London's are, but it seems like that would open up both cities to a lot of back and forth, which just is potential. you know, it just seems risky.
0: Right. I also feel like on some level, it must just not be, I think we talked about this before, but the constitutional, like making an agreement right. between cities outside of like, anyway, I just thought that was an interesting thing I noticed. Yeah. Okay, so let's jump back to Hurricane Iniki, and let's start by breaking down a couple of things that happened when it hit and the immediate impacts it had. But Before I pass it back to you, Brian, I'm going to talk about, again, one interesting thing I came across researching this episode, which is that we all know that storms get names, but in Hawaii, they get a Hawaiian name. Well, if, it, if the storm forms in the central North Pacific, it receives a Hawaiian name. Um, This is chosen from a separate list of names from the hurricanes that form the hit like Florida or Louisiana. This started way way back in the 1970s, but many Hawaiians don't really like the system or didn't like it when it came out because the names that were chosen, like aniki, had a negative connotation. Like aniki means bite or pinch. And so Hawaiian speakers would call and complain and say that when you call it something, it'll come. So if you name a storm like a nasty name, of course, it's going to have this like big, horrible effect. I thought that was really interesting, but I'll I'll pass it on to you to talk about the, the actual storm.
1: Yeah, so Iniki started out as a hurricane that seemed to be passing by south of the islands in early September uh, when it formed. And then at the last minute, uh, like September 10th, about a day before it actually hit the islands, it made a sharp turn to the north. And so people were kind of caught off guard. And it's not that there may have been any different result if they hadn't been caught off guard, if they had prepared earlier, but it was kind of a surprising development and It required people on all the islands to kind of scramble to get indoors and to make sure the population was was safe once it did hit it was absolutely devastating it was a direct hit on the island of kauai nearly 1500 homes were completely destroyed another 5000 were severely damaged all told Six people died and over a hundred people were injured, which given the destruction was not very many, but still, you know, it had a huge effect on the population. The island is only 54,000 people or was at that time. And it was reported that 17,000 were getting assistance from shelters in the days after the storm, which is almost a third of the population. Yeah, And 7,000 people were left homeless. Electricity went out across the island, so phones were down. No one could turn on their TVs to get news about what was happening or how how to help. And it ended up causing around $1.8 billion in damages, or some estimates are much higher, three, five, seven billion, once everything was all tallied. Residents said the island looked like a plucked chicken because the wind had just ripped the leaves off of all of the lush areas. And actually As an aside, it's well known that on Kauai, there is a feral chicken population. And it's said that that population, much of it is from when this hurricane passed through and all the chicken coops across the island were destroyed and chickens were left to their own devices, escaping their cages. And now if you're you're on Kauai, you can go to like a Walmart parking lot and like on the side of the parking lot, wherever there's like grass, you'll see feral chickens just kind of hanging out and doing their thing. But anyway, a a lot of those chickens may have been released into the wild from the hurricane. A few interesting facts, the Coco Palms Resort was destroyed. This was one of the fanciest resorts on Kauai, and it had been used in an Elvis film called Blue Hawaii, one of his biggest films, and so it had this lore and this history, and It was completely destroyed and never ended up reopening. And Jurassic Park was also wrapping up filming at the time. So the cast and crew was there and they had to ride out the storm in one of the, a ballroom at one of the resorts. And since all of the sets were destroyed during the hurricane, they actually had to cancel filming some of the final scenes. There was apparently a scene in which Samuel L. Jackson was supposed to get killed by someone and that was never filmed and never, you know, never put into the movie. But actually what was interesting to find was that they ended up being helpful during the recovery, you know, in the days following the hurricane, the film crew had all these generators that they had been using to do remote shots. So they donated those generators to people who needed them and they helped clear roads and they had, they had these, this manpower that could help out. So they ended up helping before they left. One other interesting thing that happened was because the hurricane hit during the day and because camcorders had become common at this point in the 90s. There ended up being a lot of footage of the storm. So it was one of the first times when Americans on the news were able to see just how devastating the storm was. And ultimately, the National Guard and FEMA came in and actually FEMA did a good job cleaning up. It turns out Hurricane Andrew had hit a month before in Florida and FEMA had been criticized for their response in that hurricane. And so they were sort of trying to repair their reputation when it came to Iniki and they sent enough help to really help bring the island back. And there was just after the hurricane, there was a lot of construction because many homeowners had hurricane insurance. And so that helped fuel the reconstruction of a lot of homes. So even though it was devastating, in some cases, people were able to rebuild and get back on their feet because of hurricane Mm. insurance.
0: So the storm itself was pretty monstrous and sounds like it hit the island really hard. Um, What about the long term effects of the storm? How did the... How did the island recover?
1: Long-term, there were a lot of negative effects. About 10% of the population left the island for good. Many of them went to other islands that hadn't been hit by the storm. The unemployment rate spiked to almost 22%. And then in subsequent years, it remained high, even in like 10%, much higher than the mainland national level in the United States. And it took around eight years to really return to the pre-Uniki unemployment levels. The overall number of jobs, private sector jobs, on Kauai dropped by 12% and also took about a decade to to return to the same levels. There were lots of people that were optimistic about bouncing back, but some questioned the push to continue to rely on tourism. And since even before the hurricane, some Hawaiians had grown frustrated with levels of tourism on the island and how it was impacting locals. Um, So there was some discussion about what to do about the future and and whether depending on tourism was such a good idea.
0: Okay, so at this point, it might be good to take a quick look back at how quickly and dramatically tourism in Hawaii changed in a little over 60 years. Looking at the tension around tourism on the island and the frustration with how it was taking over can help us better understand it. And then we can get into some of the challenges Hawaiians have faced in responding to it
1: so tourism i mean the first people from mainland united states that were actually considered travelers to hawaii were probably people that were on mail ships that were heading out to the hawaiian islands from the mainland us and much of the early tourism in hawaii was all by boat so in in the 1920s and 30s there were very few hotels visitors came on ships and stayed longer and it wasn't until nonstop flights started arriving in 1927 that things started to pick up a little bit more. And so in 1920, there were between eight and 12,000 visitors per year. And then by 2018, there were around 18,000 visitors per day just to Honolulu, the capital. Plane travel uh, started to become more affordable. And around 1967, there were around a million travelers visiting Hawaii. And by 1990, that number was at around 7 million. And now, 2019, the figure was at over 10 million. So there's just been a steady and rapid increase overall. And a lot of critics say that this has resulted in a higher cost of living. It's reduced wages since most people are working in the tourism economy, working in hotels. And there's been a commodification of Hawaiian culture and a loss of the of the culture, and it's kind of turned into this very superficial thing.
0: Mm-hmm. So in the 20th century, things happened pretty fast for Hawaii. We'll jump back to 1992, where there seemed to be a moment after Hurricane Aniki where people thought they might be able to change or influence Hawaii's trajectory when it came to the tourism industry. Uh, Today, this is a pressing question, as places across the world both struggle with the new normal and wonder if there's a better way to approach tourism in a post-pandemic world. So what happened in in Hawaii in 1992 after the storm?
1: After the storm, uh, there were more and more people um, calling out for change, and there was an organization started called the Hawaii Eco-Tourism Association that has since changed its name to the Sustainable Tourism Association, and they were pushing for Hawaii to adopt measures to limit over-tourism and to start thinking a little more complexly about how their dependence on tourism was actually a detriment to the state. Many of the insurance companies um, that had paid out claims to the people who had lost their their homes actually left the state um, because they didn't want to do business there because it had basically bankrupted them. And in response to this, the Hawaii state legislature actually created a hurricane relief fund that they started to to fund um, internally, but ultimately they never ended up using that money. It never amounted to much money and insurance companies ended up returning about 20 years later. So it was never actually used. Also, the governor at the time did speak about diversifying the economy into communication, science, and technology, but there was still this overwhelming sense that tourism was still the base of their economy and would would need to be be focused on in order for them to recover fully, even despite there being risks to this increased reliance. more recently, as tourism has increased more and more, especially on, on Kauai, there have been increasing calls for thinking about sustainability and and trying to come up with a, a better way to deal with the increasing numbers of visitors on the island and the fact that their economy is becoming more and more reliant on this. But ultimately, not a ton has has changed. And what that's meant is that the number of tourists has slowly crept back up to the levels that they were at before Hurricane Aniki. And that's left their economy susceptible to, you know, to storms, but also susceptible to unexpected changes like COVID-19, where now they're in a situation where it's as if all the islands have been hit by a hurricane. There's no one traveling there. And unemployment has gone up dramatically in in Hawaii and and much more so in Hawaii than it has across the mainland uh, USA. With Hurricane Iniki, as well as floods that they had in 2018 on Kauai and now COVID, it seems like they've gone through several phases of drastic drops in tourism that both hurt the economy, but also remind permanent residents of how nice it is without so many tourists and how much the constant flow of tourism affects their quality of life and affects their natural lands and affects marine life. But there hasn't really been the combination of sustained community pressure, funding, and political will to actually create a plan that would shift the economic focus to other industries and ensure continued economic growth. And I suspect after COVID, the economic situation will be so urgent that there'll be a similar pressure to ramp up tourism since it's the surest and best bet to getting things back to normal in the short term it's kind of a catch 22 and it's the same for any economy across the world that's overly dependent on tourism the economy can't expand into new areas until they're on a healthy footing but they can't get on a healthier footing without prioritizing tourism and so inevitably they sort of they can't escape the gravitational pull of of a tourism economy mhm so that's, I mean, so that's the basic story of it. I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens in Hawaii post-COVID. Um, since, from what I've read, there's there's been renewed calls for thinking about sustainability and thinking about the impact that so many travelers have on the islands, and it's only gotten more stark during COVID because the people that are coming to the islands are oftentimes. Not respecting the quarantine rules and sort of treating the island in a way that local people really find to be offensive to them And I think there's a chance that that may gather enough strength and movement that that there are some changes but it'll be really interesting to see what happens.
0: yeah it will be
1: there are there were a few things we wanted to get into that are sort of uh, tangential to to the hurricane. I don't know you wanted to maybe, jump into one one thing that we were interested in about sort of the terminology around hurricanes?
0: Yeah, well, it's one thing we found really interesting in researching the episode, which is that typhoons, hurricanes, and cyclones are all the same thing, actually. They're all tropical storms that have wind speeds higher than 74 miles per hour. So it just depends on the location. A hurricane hmm. is a storm that forms in the North Atlantic and Northeast Pacific, A typhoon forms in the Northwest Pacific Ocean and a cyclone in the South Pacific and Indian Ocean. So they're all the same thing. It just depends on the location when they get their names.
1: It's like potato and potato.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Kind of, sort of.
1: Cool.
0: All right. I think that does it. That's our show. Thank you for listening and make sure to follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Yesterday in Trav. We'll be posting about future episodes as well as updates on what's going on with travel today.
1: Email us with feedback or episode ideas at yesterdayintravel at gmail.com. And please, if you enjoy the podcast, tell a friend, review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe to the feed. Thanks, and we'll be back with more soon.
0: Yesterday in Travel is sponsored by Via Hero, a platform that connects you to local travel experts who live where you're going. Their job is to provide expert advice and help arrange activities and logistics like lodging, guided tours, transportation, and restaurant reservations. They also share insider tips on hidden gems and activities that you might never find searching the web.
1: When you hire a local, your money goes directly to them, and they help you plan a trip that is more fun, less expensive, and also directs your tourism dollars more evenly to the communities you visit, which helps to make your trip more sustainable. Plus, locals are the best way to help you navigate safely to avoid crowds and comply with rules so that you can have peace of mind and focus on enjoying your trip.
0: Use the code YESTERDAY at checkout to get 10% off your next customized itinerary and guidebook. Created just for you by one of Via Hero's amazing locals in over 20 destinations across the world.
1: Go to www.viahero.com to find more. That's www.viahero.com to start planning your next trip with the help of a local and remember to use the code YESTERDAY at checkout which gets you 10% off and lets them know we sent you.